listening to the Bible 126 show. Father, we just praise you for who you are, and we thank you, Father, also for what you have done for us. And Father, we thank you for this divine appointment that you've set aside for us this evening, that we could gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for that word incarnate. And Father, we would just pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds and our very lives to your word, to Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 23. Last time we were together, we took the first seven verses uh, and uh, dealt with that. Um, but then we get to, we'll pick it up tonight at verse 8. And we here we have between verse eight and the end of that chapter, thirty-nine verses, we have the roster of David's elite, David's mighty men. Uh, they're certainly his elite core. They were the, his bravest warriors. We infer from First Chronicles eleven that these particular ones also, in addition to being very brave, they were also his primary support and help to be made king. So this is his inner guard. This is his core group, uh, probably also his personal bodyguard. And uh, now each one of these appears to be have distinguished themselves in uh, in battle, having killed more than would be expected in battle, and having turned the tide of battles which otherwise Israel would have lost. So this is uh, the the recognition. Now, a small point is there's actually 37 listed here. But uh, two of those, Abisha and uh, two of them are distinguished in one particular way. Uh, also, Joab, the commander, is listed. Uh, there's also three that are particularly... It, the inference one can draw from the language is that there was a core group of 30, but there may have been some turnover in the sense they may have been killed or whatever, so that there's actually more than 30. There's, in fact, a, uh, 31 plus 2 plus 3, depending how you count those, there's the inference from the text that there was a core group of 30, sort of an elite guard. And uh, 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 there were more than 30 members, but not at one time, so to speak, if you follow me. That's an inference from the text. It may not be correct. It's just a, a possibility. Okay. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. And I'm not going to help you mispronounce these words. You can mispronounce them on your own. Um, but we have these, these several that were chief among the captains. Um, and uh, who lifted up his spear against 800 and slew at one time. That's kind of impressive. And after him was Eleazar, verse 9, son of Dodai and Hohite, uh, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who uh, there gathered for battle and the men of Israel were gone away. Um, he arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand adhered to the sword and the Lord wrought a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to spoil. In other words, he was the, the main event. And after him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a plot of ground full of lentils and the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood, but he stood in the center of the plot and defended it and slew the Philistines and the Lord wrought a great victory. And three of the thirty leaders went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, and the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in a stronghold 
And the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. We're going to get into an interesting little anecdote here. David uh, was in, uh, anyway, he, he was in the stronghold, but the garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me a drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Here's David in a moment of homesickness, a moment of uh, yearning for his home, Bethlehem, um, the city of David, um, and desires to drink of that well. Now, it's very dangerous when you're in a position of power to make even a casual remark because through the ranks, there's, there'll be an overreaction. And many mature administrators learn that uh, you know, are very cautious of what they say for that very reason, because they've learned the hard way that even a casual offhand remark can result in uh, overreactions. In any case, uh, David here makes this, uh, expresses this longing for a drink of water from the well that's in Bethlehem. And the problem, of course, is that Bethlehem at the moment is in, the, is on the, is in enemy hands. Verse 16, and the three mighty men that the writer here is speaking of, these three guys, broke through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. That's got to be impressive. David's at camp. These three guys present him with a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem. And if you were David, you'd be impressed with their, I think the technical term is chutzpah, <laughs> To, go, to break through enemy lines and come back with not a trophy of war, but simply a drink of water for their king. But what's also, while David on the one hand is obviously impressed with the loyalty, the commitment, the bravery of these three men, notice what he does. He refuses to drink it. David nevertheless would not drink of it, but poured it out unto the Lord and said, be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did these three mighty men. Here's an interesting situation. These three men made their points, obviously, with the king. But David himself felt that this, this was like blood. And he, in effect, had, must have had in mind Leviticus 17.11. He treated it, the water not as water from the well, but because of its cost. Now, admittedly, these three men were not killed, but they could have been. It was at risk of life that they brought this water. So David does an interesting, interesting uh, move. It's certainly a sacrifice unto the Lord, and we might all remember that. How often does something fall in your lap where you could make it a testimony of your commitment to the Lord by giving it to Him? Boy, I imagine that happens in all our lives, and we're so busy with our affairs that we may not stop and think that, hey, this would be a neat sacrifice. And uh, so he pours it out on the water, uh, pours it out on the ground as a gift to the Lord. Interesting. Interesting political move, too. Notice the statement he made to all his men. To all his men. Because that, of course, got around. And uh, that's dynamite. Okay. Um, now we're going to have two guys singled out here. Abishai and uh, Benaiah. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief among the three. And he lifted up his spear against 300 and slew them and won a name along with the three. See, there's just three that are very distinguished, unnamed. Scholars have tried to guess who those three were, but 
uh, the more impressive commentators point out that if God wanted us to know who they were, they would have been named. But there's also two that are named in addition to those three, Abishai and uh, Bariah. And um, if you read it casually, you may think they're of the three, but actually because there's 37, it turns out those two have to be separated out from the original three. So there's three anonymous heroes. Then there's these two that are also distinguished. Imagine taking your spear standing up against 300. That makes it about even. Huh? No, that's interesting. 300. Slew them and won a name among, uh, along with the three. Was he not most honorable among the three? Therefore he was their captain, howbeit he attained not unto the first three. And Benaiah, the son of uh, Jehida, the son of a valiant man of Kabazil, Kabzil, I guess, who had done many deeds. He slew the two sons of Ariel. Now, by the way, Ariel there may not be a name. It may be a title. It actually means lion. Lion. It may have been a military, it may have been a term speaking of a military champion. It may have, in other words, he slew two sons of the, some military champion of Moab. He went down also and slew a lion in the middle of a pit in time of snow. Every time I think of snow, I, I, I'm always intrigued how we celebrate Christmas in December. All we know for sure is that he couldn't have been born in December, right? No Roman administrator worth his salt would impose a registration when Judea was impassable. You and I don't think of Judea as a snowbound place. And indeed it isn't. It's very much like Southern California. But it does become impassable after October. The flocks are not an open field after October. So when was Jesus born? We're not sure, but it was before October of the year. Do you want a scriptural reference to that? Remember Matthew 24. Speaking of them in Judea, pray that your flight be not in winter. Remember? Jesus says that. Why does he say that? Because it's impassable in the winter. Not impossible, impassable. But in any case. Moving on. Verse 21. And he slew an Egyptian, a handsome man, and an Egyptian who had a spear in his hand, and he went down to him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. That's, eco that's economic. Boy. 22, these things did Benaiah and uh, the, you know, the son of Jehida and won a name along with the three mighty men. He was more honorable than the 30, but he attained not to the first three. And David set him over his guard. So it's interesting. We have these three, then we have these two very distinguished guys that are superheroes, not as much as the first three. You see how it's sort of being ranked here for us. And then he goes on. Uh, there's a whole list of his mighty men, this elite guard. And you'll find in this list about 31 names from verse 24 to the end. And uh, it's interesting, uh, as we go through these, I won't try to mispronounce these names. You have all the skills you need to mispronounce it with the same skill I can. But uh, in any case, uh, the one I will call your attention to is the last one, which I think is interesting. Uriah the Hittite. Interesting guy. It's interesting that he's numbered among David's elite. Okay, so uh, one small point in verse 18, it speaks of three against uh, chief among the three. The, verse, the, the word three there in the King James is probably the 30. It's referring to the whole group. The Hebrew and the Syriac suggest that as well as the context of the earlier 
verses, but no big deal. I just mentioned it in passing. Uh, okay, so much for David's mighty men. Uh, now we get into one of the last episodes. Again, these are not chronolog- chronological. They're sort of appended to, just to, to the whole chronicle of David. And um, what we're going to have in chapter 24 is a numbering of the people. You numbered the people for two reasons, for taxes and for conscription into the, into the military, the draft. And uh, we're going to, in the, in, in the First Chronicles 21, the, com- the companion parallel passage, it implies that Satan put this in David's heart. And yet uh, here we see uh, um, uh, uh, David doing this, and the anger of God is against David for numbering the people. Now, there are several, there are several issues here. Uh, not the least of which is that this apparently is a sin. It's not obvious why it would be a sin. Commentators speculate. Josephus feels in his ancient writings that the error of David had to do with not collecting the half shekel per person that he was instructed to in Exodus chapter 30. That may or may not be the real issue. It's possible, too, that David was commanded not to number the people and did so anyway. In any case, the numbering of these people is a sin, and it leads to an unusual uh, administration of the punishment. But I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Chapter 24, verse 1. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. And here it's a, it's a, it's a textual problem because in First Chronicles it's Satan that put it in his heart. And yet um, here the Lord is allowing it because it will serve his purpose ultimately. In any case, uh, verse 2, For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host who was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. From Dan to Beersheba. Dan was way in the north, Beersheba way in the south. That kind of phrase, he's not speaking of the tribe of Dan. He is in a sense, except he's really speaking of the territory of Dan, which is way up on the northern border, virtually on the border of Lebanon, what we would call today Lebanon. And Beersheba is down to the south down at the, uh, in the Negev. So it's analogous to you and I saying from Maine to California or something. See? Number ye the people that may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people as many as there are a hundredfold, and that the eyes of my Lord the king may see it. But why doth my Lord the king delight in this thing? In other words, Joab is in effect telling the king not to do this. Joab recognizes that this is a sin. But David prevailed, verse 4. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host, and Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. By the way, this isn't a casual job. It took uh, nine months and 20 days. So it's a big job. And the reason is, they, of able-bodied men able to go to war, there were 800,000 in the northern kingdoms called Israel and 500,000, half a million in, in, the, in Judah, the southern kingdom. So a million three in total of able-bodied men. That's the total population. That's ready for war. So this is a big, big operation. I mean, to number them. So verse 5. And they passed over the Jordan and camped in Arar, in uh, the right side of the city that lieth in the middle of the valley toward Gad and toward Jezer. And they came to Gilead and the land of uh, Tatim-Hochi. And uh, they came to Dam-Jaan and uh, about to Sidon. And came to the stronghold of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites and went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. 
So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave the sum of the number of people unto the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. You know, the interesting thing about David, he may blow it, but boy, he doesn't mess around. He repents immediately and confesses it. That was the thing that that was his conduct after the episode with Bathsheba. And it's that whole attitude of David that uh, leads to the Lord calling him a man after his own heart. And here again, David, for whatever reason, um, was, had this obsession to number the people, knowing it was counted by the Lord as sin, confesses it. Verse 11, when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. Boy, this is interesting. The Lord gives David a choice of three punishments. Take your pick. And I, 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 I don't know what profound theological lesson is in that. I just stand back and find it interesting how the Lord is dealing with David. He gives him three choices. And they vary from long but mild to short and severe in three levels. Okay? One is seven years, one is three months, and one is three days. And the first one will be a famine, the second will be fleeing from your enemies, and the third one will be a pestilence. So you want it drawn out and mild, or do you want it short and rough? Take your pick, David. Interesting, interesting uh, situation. So God came to David and told him and said uh, unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in the land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or wilt thou uh, there, will there, will, uh, that there be three days of pestilence in the land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. What would you pick? You're David, and you've blown it, and God says you've got these three choices. Seven years of famine. That's pretty long, right? Three months fleeing from your enemies. David's attitude is that he thinks the Lord will be more gracious than his enemies, so he's not too, not too enamored with that one. Or three days of pestilence. That's apparently the last one, is what the... What the Verse 14, David said unto Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. Let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. That's a pestilence. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented of the evil and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the thrashing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And David spoke unto the Lord when he saw the angel who smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. Gad came, on, came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. 
And Aruna went out. And by the way, this is it's a, this Aruna. It's Aruna here in Samuel. It's uh, Ornan uh, in the uh, in in, in uh, Second Chronicles. Same guy, just uh, slightly different handling of the name. In any case, uh, uh, he saw the king and the servants coming toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Aruna said. Why is my lord the king come to his servant that David said to buy the threshing floor of thee to build an altar unto the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people? And Aruna said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here are oxen for a burnt sacrifice and threshing instruments and other instruments of the oxen for wood. And all these things did Aruna like a king give unto the king. And Aruna said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said to Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which cost me nothing. Boy, is there a lesson for us. You know, twice in one evening, David sets an example for us in terms of our posturing before the Lord God of the universe. On the one hand, he... he uh, Honors God in verse 17 of the previous chapter by pouring out this water on the ground. But here's something else. He wants to make an offering to avert the pestilence. And Aruna, in deference to the king, is willing to give him the land and give him everything else he needs. And the king says, no way. Not much of a bargainer here, is he? We always make, uh, you know, we always kid about the negotiations going on. Well, this is an inverted one, isn't it? David refuses to take it for free and insists upon giving him a fair price. I, uh, Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which cost, that cost me nothing. So David bought the thrashing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Now it's not clear whether the some scholars believe that the plague had already been stopped, but David didn't know that, you see. He didn't know it had been stopped. And he offered the offering so that the plague would not hit Jerusalem. So it hit the whole land, but the, as you saw back here, um, that uh, verse 16, the angel stretched out his hand about Jerusalem to destroy it, and the Lord repented of the evil. That doesn't mean he changed his mind. God doesn't change his mind. But he gives the instructions to stop. When it says God relented or repented, it just means he grieves over man's evil. That's the net of it. But in any case, um, the, uh, the angel stopped by the thrashing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Now David apparently didn't know that. He goes ahead and or, either that or the Lord knew what David was going to do. You know, you can, you can handle us either way. Are you with me? God is never surprised. He knows that David's going to buy the thrashing floor. And of course, David does, erects an altar, and the pestilence is stopped. And that ends Second Samuel. Now you might say, what's all this about? This piece of real estate is the most important piece of real estate in the world. And its fair value at one time was 50 shekels of silver. This piece of real estate has its beginning, in a sense, 
in Genesis chapter 22. It does and it doesn't. So uh, let me pause for a minute. Um, By the way, a thrashing floor means it was on high ground. Why do you have a thrashing floor in those days? Because at the harvest, when there was a wind, you took the wheat or barley, whatever, and you, you, you you beat it in the air. The chaff, which is lighter in weight, is carried by the wind further. The grain is carried, but not as far. It's heavy. It has gravity. It it falls. So if you do this right, you end up downwind with two piles. The nearer pile is the good stuff that you want to bag and sell. Further down is the chaff, which is for fire, burn. And so a thrashing floor was always on a a high hill where they 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 took the advantage of the wind. Now, um, I'm going to amend that slightly before we're all through, but... This gives rise to then a, uh, a, um, a little bit of review. Uh, for the, just, and we won't make a big thing of it, but you might pop back to Genesis chapter 22. And we'll do a little summary of the thrashing floor of Aruna. We'll shift back in time. About a thousand years. About a thousand years. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is asked to offer Isaac as an offering for sin, his son Isaac. And all of us, when we were children in Sunday school, had this little story of Abraham offering Isaac, and it must have crossed your mind, what a bizarre story in the Bible. God telling Abraham to offer his son as an offering? Oh, sure, before the story ends, God intervenes and doesn't let him do it, but set that aside, Abraham didn't know that was coming, or did he? book of Hebrews says that Abraham knew that Isaac would have to be resurrected. It was Abraham's belief in the resurrection of Isaac that saved him. How did Abraham know that Isaac was to be resurrected? Because God had promised Abraham that out of Isaac he would have seed and be the father of many nations. Isaac didn't have any kids yet. Wasn't even married. So Abraham says, God, you want me to offer him? That's your problem. Boy, could we have that attitude when God asks us to do something? Hey, God, it's your problem. Easily said. But do we live that way? Tough. But Abraham did. Came to pass after these things that God did test Abraham, said, Abraham, behold, here am I. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. What a strange phrase. I thought Isaac had already had a I thought he had two sons. Ishmael and Isaac. For this purpose, God ignores that and focuses on the son of the promise, not the, not the handmaiden son. Paul makes a big thing out of that in the Epistle of Galatians, but we'll move on. Take now that only... By the way, remember that we always talk about the law of first mention. When any word in the Bible appears the first time, it's very important. In the book of Revelation, as we try to unravel all the codes, the book of Revelation is in code. It says so in the first verse. And as we unravel those, every word that you're trying to understand or phrase, we find explained somewhere else in Scripture, but most of the time it's explained the first place it appears. So the first, there's a law of first mention that we, we sort of take note of. And here in verse Genesis 22, verse 2, thine only son Isaac whom thou lovest. That's the first place the word love appears in the Bible. How important it is that that word love is tied to a father offering his son. John 3.16 in the Old Testament version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
but whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is exactly what this is all about. Here we're talking about the Torah. We're talking about Genesis. We're talking about the high point of the Old Testament, the Akedah, the Abraham's offering of Isaac. And it is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And Abraham knew it. Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. Because he names the place Jehovah Jireh before we're through here. Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, took two of his young men with him. Isaac, his son, cut the wood for the burnt offering, rose up and went to the place that God had told him. And then on the third day, they arrived there. And you have to think rabbinically here to really follow this. But Isaac died to Abraham when the commandment came. Isaac is returned to Abraham three days later, and that's a prophecy of the resurrection. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that uh, the gospel is how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's what he's referring to, amazingly enough. Bear in mind, Paul was a Pharisee. He understood the literalness of God's word, especially the Torah. And Abraham said unto his young man, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. So Abraham and Isaac go up the hill. The two young men and the donkey stay at the foot of the hill. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. So here's Isaac going up the hill with the wood on his back. And uh, Isaac asks Abraham, hey, this is pretty neat, Dad, but uh, where's the stuff for the offering? And we get down to verse 8, and Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went both of them together. What an interesting turn of phrase. God will provide who? Himself. Isn't that interesting? They came to the place where God had told him of. Abram built an altar, took the wood, bound Isaac. How old was Isaac during this time? About 33. About 33. Two chapters later, he's 37. He's not the little boy you always see in the Sunday school books. He went in agreement with Abraham. When they went together, the Hebrew says they went in agreement. Abraham stretched forth his hand, verse 10. Angel Lord, of course, interrupts the whole proceedings and gives him a substitutionary ram. Verse 13. Oh, let's pick up verse 12. The angel says, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from whom? From me, from God. So who's the angel? Yeah, so you don't get thrown by the... The term angel. Interesting, isn't it? Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Substitutionary ram, ordained in the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve were thrown out and ordained formally in the book of Leviticus later. Substitutionary ram. He took the burnt offering in the stead of his son. In verse 14, Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh. It is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. That title, that place name, that uh, Abraham gives it, is a prophetic name. Abraham knew he was acting on prophecy because 2,000 years later on that very hill, another father offers his only son for you and I on that very spot. On that very spot. Now, my premise to you is Chuck Missler's theory. Can't prove it. I believe this was on the high ground. They, came to, they traveled three days from Beersheba. They got to Mount Moriah, which is a group of hills, my premise is, where do they go to the top? The high ground. Okay? Remember that. And the next time you're in Israel, take a look at a topo map, and you will see why the Dome of the Rock is not on this spot. Because it's not on the high ground. It's the next high ground. What's the high ground? A place 
just above a place that's called the Garden Tomb. Golgotha is on the high ground. And look at the topo map and you'll see it's at higher altitude than the Temple Mount. Slightly. But anyway, let's not split hairs. First of all, I may be wrong. It won't be the first time. Acts 17.11 applies. Now, I love this because, obviously, I think you have been with me in Genesis 22 before. You know that, that a couple chapters later, Abraham commissions his servant by the name of Eliezer, whose name means comforter, to get a bride for Isaac. In chapter 24, verse 62, Isaac and Rebekah finally meet. And we know from, just, just as Abraham is a type of God the Father in Genesis 22, and Isaac a type of the Son, in Genesis 24, Abraham is a type of the Father, Eliezer is a type of the Holy Spirit, commissioned to gather a bride for, for uh, Isaac. And of course they meet for the first time at the well of Lahai Roy, the well of the living water. How interesting it is that every detail, every place name, every subtlety, even of the Torah, which certainly isn't constructed after the New Testament, and yet, we see here so vividly the principle that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Now, what's interesting to me, as you all know, in verse 19, there's an error. The Holy Spirit has put an error in the text because it serves a purpose. First, after this whole episode, the, the names of the place Jehovah Jireh, the angel gives a special blessing on, on uh, Abraham in verse 17, that in blessing I'll bless thee, and multiplying I'll multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast made my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. Who came down from the hill? Abraham joined the two young men and the donkey, and they went home to Beersheba, three days' journey. Where is Isaac? Isaac is not listed in verse 19. He obviously came down with Abraham to go home, but the Holy Spirit has edited his name out of the record from the time that he's offered for, as an offering until he's united with his bride in chapter 24, verse 62, later on. How interesting it is that the Holy Spirit has tailored this narrative so that it, perform, it becomes a model, a type my authority is Hosea chapter 12, verse 10, where God says, I have spoken not only by my prophets, but I've used similitudes, analogies, models. And this is a model of the whole New Testament story tucked away here in Genesis 22. But this piece of ground that Abraham offered Isaac on, Mount Moriah, is the scene, of course, of several interesting things. We have just seen it, the scene of a case where David purchased the thrashing floor of Aruna. Now, it's my belief that that isn't the high ground, it's the next high ground, it happens to be. But it's not, and of course, we're finishing Second Samuel. What comes up after this, of course, is David's son Solomon builds the temple. His father, David, paid all the bills. He stockpiled the materials, made arrangements with Hiram for the cedars and all this stuff. And that's the whole story of Solomon's temple. And Solomon builds the temple. How many temples are there? Oh, I told you. You've done your homework. Okay. Okay. Before we get into that, I might mention something else. There's been a tradition since the 600, since 600 AD in the Islamic world that uh, Muhammad ascended from this spot. And that's why they built the, what we call the Dome of the Rock there. And it's presumably on the spot that Abram offered Isaac. I don't believe Abram offered Isaac there as an aside. 
I think he did it on the high ground, which is a little further to the north. But that's, who knows? What's interesting is uh, a physicist in the Hebrew University by the name of Asher Kaufman wrote some papers some years ago that were very controversial at one time, and there's still groups that disagree, but he's pretty well proven conclusively where the Herod's temple, excuse me, where Solomon's temple originally stood and where Herod's temple stood, obviously co-located. And um, his, the so-called Kaufman hypothesis, which has been much debated for the last five, six years, is now pretty widely accepted. And that what it means is, is that the temple didn't stand where the Dome of the Rock does, but it's to the north, about 25 meters. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that they could they could build the dome of the, they could build the temple, and don't confuse the temple with the great synagogue or some of these other religious. The, the temple is unique. The temple is uh, going to be rebuilt. They've already started training the priests for it. There's 200 priests trained and four yeshivas in in uh, Israel. They have built over half the implements for them, digging out the old records to do it exactly as the this the, 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 as, as was prescribed. And they, will, they, can, they can build it without touching the Dome of the Rock. Now, if they should do that, if they build it the way it originally was, the Dome of the Rock sits in the area known as the Court of the Gentiles, undedicated ground. And uh, uh, just to refresh your memory, we'll pop back to Revelation chapter 11, which is a very, very interesting passage. John is transported forward in time and says in verse 11, there was given me a reed like a rod. In other words, a measuring stick. And the angel said, stood saying, rise and measure, consider, reckon. The closest word we would have in the English is to reckon. Reckon the temple of God. The word temple here is now, it's the temple proper. Measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship in it. But the court which is outside the temple, leave it out. And measure it not, for it is given unto the, the nations, or the Gentiles. Then he goes on, and the holy city shall, be, shall they tread underfoot 42 months, and he goes on. Interesting passage, because it implies that the outer court will be profane. Now, why are we so interested in this temple? A couple of reasons. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. This is all I realize a review for many of you. But any of you who have not had the opportunity or the occasion to study carefully Daniel chapter 9, before we do that, turn to Matthew 24. (laughs) It's always nice to have a mandate. So let's turn to Matthew 24. Four disciples come to Jesus privately for a secret briefing. Peter, James, and John, the inside three, and in this case, Andrew, Peter's brother, tags along. So there's four guys, insiders. And this this gives rise to a two-chapter briefing. Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and 14, or Luke 21 and 22. In those three Gospels is the so-called Olivet Discourse. It happens to be on the Mount of Olives, so they call it the Olivet Discourse. The main thing to recognize, it's an inside insider's briefing. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him. Here it says the disciples. In one of the other Gospels, it tells you exactly who was there. And he essentially asked him about the second coming, and he lays it on him, and I won't go through it all here, other than the highlight verse 15, which is the key to the whole passage. Jesus speaking, he says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. Abomination has to do with idol worship. The abomination of desolation is the ultimate extreme of idol worship. It happened once before in history, and from that we can understand what it's talking about. In 135 B.C., before this was said, 
Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the Holy of Holies by slaughtering a sow on the altar and then erecting a pagan idol in the Holy of Holies. And that is called the, the uh, abomination of desolation. It was the, the, ins, the, the it, it incensed uh, the people so much that under Judaeus Maccabeus they had a rebellion and uh, threw him off and cleansed the temple. And that whole procedure gives rise to the holiday that the Jews celebrate as Hanukkah, the cleansing of the temple after that, after that revolt. But what led to that revolt was the abomination of desolation by Antiochus Epiphanes. But bear in mind, that was 135 B.C. That was before Jesus said this. And we're grateful for that because of those references, we understand what the abomination of desolation, what that term means. Jesus is saying, speaking of yet future, when you shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. You don't have to do any homework about who wrote Daniel. Jesus told you who did. It happens to be the best documented book of the Old Testament in terms of authenticity, but that doesn't matter. That's a lot of library research. Save yourself the trouble, trust Jesus Christ. He said so. He said, Daniel, he said he was a prophet. When you see this thing, stand in the holy place. And by the way, the holy place is behind the holy of holies, it's behind the veil. If you're in Judea, how can you see this? The answer is on television. The same way you saw the R.V. Oswald murdered. You all probably, most of you were eyewitnesses. Same way. And then Jesus, and the writer of uh, Matthew says, Whosoever readeth, let him understand. This prophecy that Jesus is referring to is a highly technical thing. But from Luke uh, 21, we know that he held Jerusalem accountable to know this prophecy to the very day. So we won't take the time tonight, because most of you have been through it. If you haven't been through it, get tapes by Chuck Smith or myself or Hal Lindsey or someone you're comfortable with and understand Daniel 9, the so-called 70-week prophecy. Why? Because Jesus told you to in Matthew twenty four fifteen. It's not optional. It's not a hobby. It's not a peripheral special interest. It's the center line of your Christian faith. The hope, the blessed hope, is what? The second coming of Jesus Christ. The key to it is right here. Let's pop back to Daniel 9 and just extract a couple of items. Daniel chapter 9 is a four-verse prophecy. 24, 25, 26, and 27. 24 is the scope of the whole thing. 25 is the first 69 of 70 weeks. Verse 26 is a gap, some events that occur after the 69th but before the 70th. And 27 is the so-called 70th week, this last week of years that the prophecy speaks of. And he shall confirm. Now, who's the he? What's the noun precedent? The prince that shall come. Verse 26, after three score and two, in other words, seven weeks, then three score and two weeks, shall the Messiah be cut off. The word is karat, executed for a capital crime but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. After the Messiah was killed, who destroyed the city and the sanctuary? Titus Vespasian with the 10th, 12th, and 15th legions laid siege to Jerusalem, slaughtered a million six hundred thousand inhabitants and burned it to the ground. Left not one rock upon, not one stone left upon another. Looking at it from the point of view of prophecy, the people of the prince that shall come. Now the prince that shall come is the Antichrist yet to come. But his people destroyed the city and the sanctuary. So in some sense, bear in mind, you're hearing this from a global view of history. So whoever this prince is, it was his people that destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Well, who destroyed the city and the sanctuary? The Roman legions. So it's in that sense we visualize him as a Roman leader, or at least a Western, you know, a European leader. You follow me? That's where we get this idea of the Roman leader. Not from here alone. There's many other passages, but that just 
You can get enough from here. And this guy is going to enforce a covenant with Israel for one week. And in the middle of the week, he'll cause a sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Aha! So there's going on. Up until the middle of this week, there's sacrifice and oblation. That means there's a temple. That means the temple is built and dedicated. Nothing says that it was built and dedicated at the beginning of that week. It simply says in the middle of the week, he violates the temple. It might have been standing 10 years before the beginning of that week. We don't know. Don't presume, like many people do, that the temple is somehow the subject of this treaty. It might be, but we don't know that it is. You with me? Temple is built. Somewhere along the way, there's a treaty. In the middle of that treaty, he violates the sanctity of the temple because by then he is strong enough to be worshipped as God. The other passage, after the addition of Daniel 9, verse 27, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, we've just been through 2 Thessalonians. If you're new in the group, I encourage you to get the tapes on 2 Thessalonians. It's probably the most important prophetic passage in the New Testament. And Paul makes it very, very clear. Many people have tried to confuse themselves in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but it's hard to do if you just take it carefully. And we won't try to do that tonight, but simply remind you of verse 4. Speaking of the Antichrist, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Notice he's not just anti-Christian. We call him Antichrist, that's a misnomer. Nowhere is he called in the Scripture the Antichrist. He has 50 different titles in the Scripture. Antichrist is not one of them, but he's the, it's the label we use because of a phrase that Paul, uh, uh, John uses in one of his letters. Speaking of the spirit of Antichrist. And indeed it fits, and yet it's not as denotative as we use it. The prince that shall come, the little horn of Daniel 7, the little horn of Daniel 8, uh, the lawless one. Uh, you, you can make a list of a lot of titles. In any case, he opposes all that is called God. He opposes Allah. He opposes whatever is called God. Not just the real God. You follow what I'm saying? We miss that unless you're watching. He's, uh, he exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Wow. There's a lot of things around that are worshipped. He exalts himself above all that. Powerful guy. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Where is he sitting? In the temple. Is there a temple today? No, but there is about to be. Have I got a Christmas gift for you this year? For centuries, we've been looking for Israel to be back in the land. Have you noticed? For I've gone around for 20 years with a little slideshow trying to convince people there's going to be a super state arise in Europe. Cole this month is advocating the relinquishing of all sovereignty to the federal government in Europe. There's a super state arising in Europe with three times the population of the United States an economic power that's going to be something to be reckoned with. And as they point out, they didn't create a common market for the benefit of foreigners. And you notice the gap talks have fallen apart, which is a move towards protectionism. Whose protectionism? Not ours. We're not smart enough. Europe's. Anyway, we have Israel back in the land. We have a super state rising in Europe. We have the Soviet Union arming the very people that Ezekiel predicted 2,500 years ago. Ezekiel 38 is getting positioned. Don't miss it. I'm not saying next month. I'm not saying the Persian Gulf will lead to it directly, but indirectly it may. There's a stalemate or a back down. Iraq, uh, with Iraq. Syria and Lebanon, the whole, what else is happening is incredible, but we don't watch it because we're all preoccupied with the Persian Gulf. 
If you want to know what I'm talking about, subscribe to Countdown News Journal, and it'll lay it all out for you. And I'm not being flipped. I just don't have time to get into all that right now. Okay, so there's there's Israel in the land, super state in Europe, Russia's position for Ezekiel 38, and meanwhile, Babylon is being rebuilt for the last 20 years. Fascinating. Fascinating. And what's happening in Israel? A temple is being positioned. As you celebrate Christmas this year, there's a lot of things in the family you'll rejoice over and you'll share, and great, but... Put at the center of your celebration the person of Jesus Christ and specifically the time in which we live. Praise God. Because we are watching God move the furniture in place for the last act. And it's visible, it's there, and I'm not saying a week from Tuesday, it may be some years, but the point is, it's visible, happening before us, and we should rejoice in that. Now, um, I talked about temples. And it's interesting, we always speak of Solomon's temple as the first temple, and we speak of Herod's temple as the second temple. You'll see the literature, the second temple, meaning the temple that Jesus Christ worshipped in. That's a misnomer. Because after Solomon, if you want to call that one the first one, fine. Um, and it got destroyed when they went to, were captives in Babylon. Then they, under, Cyrus, under the Persians, Nehemiah got the, or under Ezra and Nehemiah, they got back in the land to rebuild the temple. We have the temple which I'll call of Zerubbabel's, right? When the Romans later appoint Herod to be king to popularize himself to the Jews being a non-Jew, he conducted a huge renovation of the temple. But that's really a, that's not Zerubbabel's temple, which was meager. It was a grandiose extension of that, complete rebuild, if you will. So you and I would probably call that the third temple, not the second temple. But let me not confuse you. In the literature, you'll see the second temple, they mean Herod's temple. And, of course, that gets destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. But so we don't confuse ourselves, I'm going to suggest to you that there are seven temples. And I'm going to call, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 1.9. Remember, we were in 1 Samuel. Let's refresh ourselves a little bit and make a point of 1 Samuel chapter 1 with a subtlety. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 1 we talked about Hannah. And in verse 9 of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, it says, So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. Now what was at Shiloh in those days? The tabernacle, right? But my authority for calling the tabernacle a temple is here. There are other authorities too, but this is simple, because here the tabernacle is called the temple of the Lord. Has a temple been built as you and I think of it? No. They're talking about the tabernacle, the tabernacle of Moses, Exodus, the whole routine. Here it is. So in your little list, I'm going to assume that the first temple is the tabernacle, 1 Samuel 1.9. Okay. The second temple, you'll have no problem with. That's Solomon's. If you want a verse, we won't take the time now. 1 Kings 6, verses 5 and 17 refer to Solomon's temple as a temple. No problem with that, I'm sure. That makes, then it's destroyed by the Babylonians when they get released to go home after the seven years captivity under Zerubbabel. They make what, we, what I'll call the third temple. Tabernacle, Psalms, now Zerubbabel's. By authority, Ezra 4, verses 1 and 2. Speaking of Zerubbabel's temple, obviously, is a temple. No problem with that. After Zerubbabel, we have Herod's temple, John chapter 2, verse 20. Now, making a distinction between Herod's and Zerubbabel's. 
Now, the temple that you and I are excited about are none of those four. It's what I'll call the future temple from our point of view. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 we just looked at. Daniel 9.27. The Antichrist has to defile a temple yet to be rebuilt. I'll call that temple number five. After that, of course, in Ezekiel chapter 41, verse 1, we have the millennial temple that Ezekiel describes about. Don't confuse that with eternity. The millennium is a very peculiar period of time. The more you study it, the less you know. And that leaves six so far. Millennium six, the heavenly temple in chapter 7, Revelation 21, verses 3 and 22. There is no temple because we're dwelling with God. But I'm going to su suggest that that's the ultimate boundary conditions, the seventh. So there's seven temples. So that's kind of fun. Seven temples. Uh, first of all, it's authoritative in the scripture and there's nothing else you can confuse your friends with. It, right? um, so watch, watch your news services and such for actions having to do with the temple in Jerusalem. It's a big, big deal for you and I. It's a big deal for Judaism. Different issue. It's a big deal for us because it's setting the stage for this scenario written down in advance. Now, I'm going to leave you one other teaser, and, um, and I'm just going to read them off so you can do your own study. The Bible says you are the temple of God. And most of us read that and take it as an idiom. How many times does the Bible say you are the temple of God? Very good guess, Bill. Seven. And I'm interested in that because I'll give you the seven. First Corinthians chapter three, verses nine through seventeen. First Corinthians, maybe we should go through these. Let's let's go through these more carefully. Let's turn to First Corinthians chapter three. For we are labors together with God, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. For we are labors together with God, ye are God's cultivated field. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth on it. But let every man take heed how he buildeth upon it. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. How often we quote verse 11, right? What's it speaking of the foundation of? A holy temple, God's dwelling place. You. If any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble. There's two. There's six things, but there are two classes. Those which are combustible, those that aren't. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall test every man's work of what sort it is. A few weeks, you're going to have New Year's resolution time. And what you're going to do is you think back to this past year and think about making, you know, most, I don't know how many get into this thing, that you make a few resolutions you can break in the first five or six days. But you do it, New Year's resolution. Let me suggest a couple of things at Christmas time, just to depart a little bit, speaking of fire. It's an old campfire stunt, but you might remember it. At Christmas, we give gifts to everybody except the person we're supposed to. When the wise men came to Bethlehem, did they trade gifts among themselves? I don't think so. Who? what did you get? Oh, man, I got some frankincense. Oh, I got some myrrh. No, 
They gave, they gave gifts to Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think it's a wonderful thing to have uh, the nostalgia of a Christmas tree. I, I think the Christmas holidays is fun. It's very soulish, not spiritual, soulish, in terms of memories of your childhood and family. And there's a lot of, we, we, we knock the commercialism of it, and that's appropriate, yet there's a lot of positives. But we don't give gifts to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to suggest an episode you can do if you have a fireplace. Pause. You know, if you get too heavy, everybody gets unglued, you know. Celebrating Christmas in the home of a fanatic. It's terrible. <laughs> have some sticks. Have everybody pick a stick. And let them, in the privacy of their own council, decide what they're going to give the Lord Jesus Christ the coming year. Some pet problem. Some particular... You can fill in the blanks. And let the stick represent that. Put it in the fireplace. Give it to the Lord. You got a problem? You got a a habit? You got a failing, a fault? Give it to the Lord Jesus Christ. This Christmas is a gift. Why not? It's a neat thing to work. You always do this up at campfires. Usually, I don't know if you do in Christian camps. Any? Do it at your home at Christmas. The other thing you might do when you get around to New Year's Eve. Don't talk about resolutions because you know what the flesh will do. You know, you'll either break it and not care, or worse, you will break it and care and get into a guilt trip. It's a lose-lose. But what you can do is take a good hard look at your life and apply 1 Corinthians 3. What's going to stand at the end? Most of us will have most of our life consumed because it's been vanity. Believe me, I know. And yet there are parts of it that will stand the test of fire. And you know enough of the scripture to make your value judgments, but make them from God's point of view. Take a look at this past year from that point of view, and that's past. That's water over the bridge or dam or whatever. But 91 is fresh and new. And re-examine your life and see what you can resolve, if I dare use that word, to have stand in 91. Anyway, that was all unscheduled departure from verse uh, 13. If any man's work abide which he hath built upon it, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Yet he himself shall be saved, yet as by fire. In other words, this has nothing to do with salvation. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Why am I hammering this? Because I'm going to challenge you to do a study of the architecture of the temple. Because if you understand the architecture of the temple in spiritual terms, you will understand how to walk by faith. You will understand how to make choices that will be God-honoring. You and I are victims of modern psychology, which is built on a paradigm of man's knowledge of the past. And I won't disparage Freud and all his problems. It's too easy to do. But we don't understand our makeup, our architecture, because we haven't studied from the Word. Study the temple of God, the holy of holies, the holy place, the outer court, and even the storehouses. See, the interesting thing about the temple, in Solomon's temple, it has features the tabernacle didn't, and they're valid. When Jesus Christ quotes the Shema in Matthew, he adds something that's not in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. And Jesus adds, and all thy mind. 
the, the temple had a porch and the pillars of Boaz and Jachin. What did they hold up? Nothing. What are they there for? Counsel and might. That's the threshold of your decision-making process. You need to understand the architecture of the temple. Make that a challenge for yourself. We won't try to get into all that tonight, but just be aware of the fact that there is fruit there for you if you'll take the trouble to study it. And you'll understand not just the temple, but yourselves, because you are the temple of God. And you'll understand how to, to walk. Fundamental stuff. And one source, I recommend you do it on your own, but one source is my wife's tape. She's studied this for 10 years, and I think she's made some fantastic practical discoveries. So I'll leave that with you. You can get them through your tape sources. They're, they're priced right. Um, meaning they're free from the... Okay, 1 Corinthians 3. Let's take 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom ye have of God, and ye are not your own? You don't own yourself anymore. You were purchased. And the Holy Spirit is the evidence of that. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, verse uh, 16. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 6, verse 16. For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so on. Turn to Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 20 and 21 and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Something very mystical going on. It involves you personally, thoroughly, completely. You need to understand it. That was the fourth verse. Let's take the fifth one. It's Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. We're his house. 1 Peter 2.5. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And the last one to get the full seven is 1 Peter 4.17. 1 Peter 4.17. For the time has come that judgment must begin where? At the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them who obey not the gospel of God? Okay, kind of interesting because I don't think Peter and the writer to Hebrews and... Um, Paul got down and said, gee, we've got six references. We need a seventh to make it complete. Right? I'm being flippant, of course. On the other hand, isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit engineers the text this way? So I think I'm out of gas. We've covered 2 Samuel. But I have to share with you. I can't resist sharing with you since I've got a little time to, to get around a little bit. Um, some of the things that were, were presented on TBN last Thursday. Um, Dr. Hugh Ross uh, shared some perspectives, some possibilities. I wouldn't sell these too hard. They're just insights, possibilities from his perspective in the field of physics. And um, 
Some of you maybe, if you're if you are familiar with mathematics literature, you've probably read many many years ago a famous paper was written on flatland, and as, as an attempt to try to help us understand dimensionality. And Hugh Ross has taken that basic idea and made it very colorful. But he, and, and I think I may have shared some of this with you in the past, except he did some twists to this that I think are so appropriate for the Christmas season. I thought, even though it's got nothing to do with Second Samuel, it would be fun to share uh, Christmas. And um, so I will. you need to understand as I do this, I'm borrowing heavily on, on uh, Dr. Hugh Ross's uh, creativity here. And the first thing uh, that uh, is done, of course, we have to announce that we have two unannounced guests to share with you tonight. But before I introduce them to you, I want you to be prepared to be compassionate because these two guests suffer from a handicap. These two guests only live in two dimensions. And uh, I can't recall whether I've shared this with you before, but I have with us tonight a special guest, Mr. and Mrs. Flat. And they suffer from the fact that they only live in two dimensions. And you probably are wondering where I got these things. Um, I was in my study cutting these out when my wife walked in. <laughs> and uh, Hugh uses larger ones because they're more visible, but I wanted something I can keep my Bible for just such occasions, so I cut small ones. But I was cutting these out, and I knew she walked in. <laughs> There's no way I was going to explain So I went without batting eyes, just kept doing this with utmost seriousness. And she wasn't sure whether to ask or not. <laughs> I would have felt better had she asked something rather than look at me rather knowingly and just keep going. Yeah. <laughs> In any case, Mr. and Mrs. Flat are very useful. See, the problem is, you and I, and I'm going to ignore time for the moment. I'm going to come back to time. You and I live in three dimensions. We have a floor, ceiling, and four walls, and we're used to three dimensions. Mathematically, in a Cartesian, we call it X, Y, and Z. Three, you know, if we graph it, and we can do equations. We know all about three dimensions because we live there. We can represent it symbolically. We can represent it geometrically. We understand three dimensions. We happen to know from several ways that God lives in more than three. Jesus Christ was able to enter and leave a room like ours. Imagine the doors and windows locked. You've got four walls, a floor, and a ceiling, six sides, a six-sided space. In the upper room, he can enter and leave, not as a spirit, Physically, handle me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bone, he said, as they were frightened. Understandably, he was able to enter and leave. There are techniques in mathematics that would cause us to understand, symbolically at least, how you're going to have what, what mathematicians call a hyperspace, a space of more than three dimensions. They're all, and it turns out, not only is it possible, it's useful for solving problems. Engineers, scientists, and mathematicians routinely manipulate problems in and out of different spaces because while they're intractable to solution one kind of a space, you can convert them to another kind of a space where they yield to a solution and you can convert back. That sounds crazy, but it works. It's very practical. So it's from that background that we know that Jesus had at least six spatial dimensions. And we understand from particle physics, we understand there are subatomic particles that demonstrate at least eight physical dimensions. You and I can't relate to that. Now, if I add to the spatial dimensions, time dimensions, it gets even more confusing. So what Hugh has done so skillfully, you and I can't talk meaningfully about four or five or six-dimensional spaces because we haven't had the background or tools to do that. But what we can do 
is go down a dimension and begin to understand what dimensionality means. So what you and I are going to do rhetorically here is we're going to explore Mr. and Mrs. Flat. And imagine I have a plane, a large glass table, and I have these on the table. So they live in a, a two-dimensional universe, right? Got Mr. and Mrs. Flat. You and I are three-dimensional, so we have some advantages, obviously, over Mr. and Mrs. Flat. Let's explore what those advantages mean. Mr. Flat, when he looks at Mrs. Flat, sees a line, right? Okay? But as he moves around Mrs. Flat, he can construct what she looks like. You see? They live in two dimensions, but he sees only one, really, right? When I look at you, I see a two-dimensional. I don't see three-dimensional. I see a two-dimensional image, don't I? At any one instant. But as I move around, I can reconstruct you in three dimensions because I take advantage of my mobility. That's exactly what he does to Mrs. Flat, right? What he also does is if I... I'm a three-dimensional person, and I have this plane. If I stick my finger through the plane, what does Mrs. Flat see? A circle. She actually sees a line, but she, she can tell that it's a circle. If, I, if, if Mr. Flat's over here, and I put three fingers through the plane, what does he see? Okay, and when they get together, they argue. Mrs. Flat says, I've seen God. He's a circle. Mr. Flat says, no, no, I've seen God, and he's three circles. So Mrs. Flat goes to the church of one circle, and Mr. Flat goes to the church of three circles. And of course, I'm being flippant. And yet, you see, they're dealing with partial information because they live in a single, a two-dimensional world. And we're now talking about a three-dimensional being intruding in that three-dimensional world, two-dimensional world. Let's share another insight. If it's hard for me to do this because I can't hold them, if Mrs. Flat is in this two-dimensional world, I'm three-dimensional. I can put my finger one millionth of an inch above her, right? I'm closer to her than Mr. Flat ever could be. And if Mr. Flat, so, and I can do the same thing to Mr. Flat, I can put my finger, say, one millionth of an inch above him. I'm closer to him than he has any consciousness of. Because I'm still outside his dimensionality, but I'm close, right? If Mr. and Mrs. Flat are mild apart in this two-dimensional space, I can be closer to them no matter where they are. So as we play with that, we begin to realize how you and I are close to God, no matter where we are. Here in Costa Mesa, or if one of you goes to Lancaster, <laughs> or to Saudi Arabia, God can be just as intimate to us simultaneously. It's got nothing to do with this space. It's the space he operates in, because he's, he is more than three. In fact, we have reason to believe it's more than nine. I personally believe, or no, with no evidence, that he's in a Hilbert space. Hilbert is a, Hilbert is a mathematician who postulates and develops formulas for an a, a infinite number of dimensions. Those things are possible in, in the field of mathematics. Now, we've only talked spatial dimensions. There's another kind of dimension that's even more provocative. That's the dimensionality of time. You and I live in four dimensions. Length, width, height, and time. We actually probably have half a dimension because our time dimension only goes forward, not backward. We can't remember tomorrow. Can you? Anyone? That was a test question. We can travel forward and look back. We can't look forward or travel back. 
authors have a lot of fun with literature playing with that, but in experience, that's the only we, we can. We do see time reversals and some unusual laboratory conditions, but those are very weird special cases. And you have to be kind of weird to be a particle physicist anyway. The whimsical names don't help, but I won't get into all that right now. I'm going to suggest to you that God, you and I, back up, you and I have a linear concept of time. In school, on a blackboard, we had a start, we drew a line and an end. The beginning of the line was birth, the end of the line was a death. Or we do a timeline where various things happen in history as points along the time. We think in terms of linear time. We've, chat, we've chatted about this before, how God is outside a concept of linear time. Another way of saying the same thing, he is in a two-dimensional time. Okay? If, I, if, I, if my life is represented by a line in time, and somebody else's life is a line in time, and pretty soon we add all these up, we have lots of different lines, don't we? From plane geometry, what do we have? A plane, right? In other words... If we have just one timeline, we have a line. But if you have a line plus any other point, you define a plane. I'm going to assume for our discussions without getting complicated that all these lines are coplanar. Okay? Now, if God is two-dimensional, not just two, maybe 17, but the point is at least more than one, we begin to understand how we can listen to all our prayers simultaneously. See, you and I can't relate to that because we have a singular, single, what's called engineering, a single-thread design. Let's see, but God has a broader bandwidth than that. Now, why am I getting to this on Christmas time? Well, Dr. Ross suggested some interesting possibilities. We know from, a, from Philippians 2 that Jesus Christ's dimensionality before his incarnation, well, he was God. So if God is in 11 dimensions or whatever, that's what Jesus Christ was. When he became incarnate, what did he do? He voluntarily limited himself to our three plus time. Imagine yourself willing, because your the father asked you, to enter a two-dimensional world for a while. Yeah, be Mr. Flat. Except instead of going from three to two, he went from eleven or more to our three, huh? Plus time. I'll come back to the time. Now it's interesting in the upper room when he says to his disciples, it's better for you that I go. Why? Because he'll return to the Father and regain some of the capabilities he gave up, right? Jesus Christ could not be omnipresent when he walked the earth. He was either in Judea or Samaria or Galilee or wherever, right? Now he can be everywhere. So that's pretty neat, except there's some other aspects to this. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He, our Christmas gift from God is not the manger scene. Our Christmas gift from God is the cross, where Jesus Christ paid the price for your alienation to God and mine. We talk about that as being sin, but let's ask, answer, analyze that a moment. Your sin carried a penalty of eternal separation with God, right? Isn't that what sin means? How is Jesus Christ going to pay that price for you in three hours on the cross? Because of nail prints? Loss of blood? Excruciate, don't, I'm not minimizing the physical agony of the cross. But I want to set that aside for a moment. 
I'm going to suggest to you that's only a small visible part of what was going on. I'm going to suggest to you the possibility that Jesus Christ had to give up forever two dimensions of his time existence. I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus Christ had more than two, three or more, but whatever they are, the requirement of your salvation, your reconciliation to God is that your sin be paid for. How? By hanging on a cross for three hours? Being in the grave for three days? That's only part of it. The penalty for your sin was eternal separation from God. And one way that that can be conceptualized is that he had to give up at least one dimension of time, but that's for one of us. He paid for how many? All of us. That implies two dimensions of time. Gone. Forever. And maybe that's why after his resurrection, they never recognized him. Because from Isaiah 50, we know his beard was ripped off in addition to all the other wounds you're aware of. And we know he carried his wounds. He had the nail prints on the side. His face was so disfigured from all the beatings and he had no beard. No wonder they didn't recognize him in the garden that morning. No wonder on the Emmaus Road they didn't recognize him until they saw the nail prints in his wrists. Now, when John is transported in Revelation chapter 5, he sees the lamb as it had been slain. You mean that's eternal? Now, the possibility exists that Jesus Christ forever has given up at least two dimensions of his existence for you and I, that we might have eternity. It also is possible that this is why our resurrection bodies will be perfect, but his still carries the marks of his humiliation for you and I. So this Christmas, when we bow before the throne of God and count your blessings, recognize what the real gift of Christmas is. And it's not a manger scene and some shepherds or magi, with all due respect. It's a cross at Golgotha that was pre-enacted 2,000 years before the fact by Abraham and Isaac, in which the living God gave up some number of dimensions to his existence eternally so that you and I would have the opportunity to cohabit with him. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, Father, you are such an awesome God. Father, we just thank you for the gift of your Son. And as we pause in this season of celebration, Father, we just thank you for going to such extremes because you love us. 
Would you love us beyond our comprehension? We just thank you, Father, for the person of Jesus Christ that you have given us. We thank you, Father, that you've revealed yourself to us. And Father, we would ask you, by your Spirit, to guide us in our growth. As we grope for you, Father, as we as we try to understand, Father, we just pray that you would enlighten us. Give us a hunger for your word. Help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Help us to understand what you would have of us. In all these things, Father, we just pray that you would accept ourselves as a living sacrifice. In Jesus' name. Amen.